This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting in place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada on the traditional territory of the many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. My guest today is Cassidy Cagon, the Métis National Council President. She was elected to the role in September 2021, the first woman to be elected to the position of president at the age of 29 and the first new leader in over 18 years. Born in Roslyn, BC, her family roots go back to the historic Métis communities of Batoche and St. Louis, Saskatchewan. She graduated with a BA from Vancouver Island University and prior to taking the lead of the MNC, was the youth minister for the Métis Nation of BC. President Caron has been called a nation builder, a leader who is committed to transparency and accountability, and someone who has pledged to use her knowledge, skills, and perspectives for the benefit of the Métis people. Welcome to Black and White, President Caron. It's a real honor to have you with us today. Thank you for such a kind introduction. 
I reached out to you last year after I, I heard of your election. I saw you on TV. I was super impressed. Uh, and before we get into it, I, I just want to ask you, how do you go from, you know, uh, university to some work with the government to being a consultant? And next thing you know, essentially, you become a politician uh, representing your, your people. How does that turn happen? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it happened really quickly, of course. But, you know, as Métis people, you know, politics is just kind of in our blood. Um, ever since, uh, you know, the ethnogenesis of Métis people, we've kind of always been a people who are ready and willing to fight and serve our people. And so it's in my blood. Um, and really, it all came through the relationships that I've been building throughout my entire life and all of the different aspects of my education and then my career when i dipped my toes into politics when i was the youth minister out at Métis nation british columbia everything that i did it was just really important to me to build relationships with everyone and anyone wherever i went and you know i think that's really what led me to to being in this position amazing amazing and and really it sounds like it was also kind of a generational shift mm -hmm. to have uh, a woman a young person someone with obviously a lot of skills and capabilities so congratulations thank you so we have you know people listening to this podcast uh, in canada and the united states really all over the world and so i always find it important to orient people who may not be as familiar and so in the territory now called canada Indigenous people are comprised of three distinct nations, including the Inuit, which for many centuries were called Eskimos. And I use that word just to give people context. First Nations, where Americans may call them, you know, Native Indians. Uh, and of course, the Métis people, who finally received official recognition. And I, I always amazed that uh, about our history here in Canada. Only in 1982 in the Canadian Constitution, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. With our time that we have today, President Carr, I want to dig deeper into some knowledge of the Métis people and about the centuries-long struggle and recognition of the Métis people on this territory for respect and equality, and also some of the recent progress that's been made and the really continuing journey towards reconciliation and equality. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the Métis people. Who are the Métis people? What is some of that history? And can you give us a quick summary um, and why it's such a distinct community. I think it's really important to ground people in that history. Sure. So, so the Métis Nation, um, as you said, we are a distinct Indigenous people and emerged through a process of ethnogenesis in the early 1800s in the historic Northwest here in Canada. Um, and ethnogenesis meaning that we were a blend of First Nations and, and European settlers here on this territory, but it's so much more than simply being mixed. You know, um, ethnogenesis means that a, a culture was created, a people was created, a nation was created with a shared history, language, culture, collective consciousness. And so really now Métis people, if you look back in history, we hold a central place in the history and really the development of Canada and, and this country as it is now. And uh, yeah, so today the Métis Nation is, we're comprised of citizens and communities that were recognized and identified as being part of this country historically, as well as individuals and communities who are accepted as being part of, of our people today. And so 
the Métis Nation, the Métis National Council, which I'm the president of, is represented by democratically elected governments, Métis governments, such as the Métis Nation British Columbia, Métis Nation of Alberta, Métis Nation Saskatchewan, and Métis Nation of Ontario. And collectively, these governments come together and they mandate the Métis National Council as the body to represent the Métis Nation at the national and international levels. And when we talk about the Métis Nation homeland, to give um, the listeners a little bit of an understanding, it includes communities in that historic Northwest, which spans from Northwest Ontario all the way to Northeast British Columbia, parts of the Northwest Territories, and even the northern part of the United States along that what is now the Canadian-US border. Of course, the territory doesn't mean that we encompassed the entire landscape of that homeland, but rather communities throughout that landscape. And in in a, a Cree term, which is Wakotawin, it really describes the relationship and the responsibilities that our communities had with and to each other. And to understand how our communities were connected all the way from Northwestern Ontario to Northeastern British Columbia, there was a lot that has taken place within, within Canada's history that has mm-hmm. really, um, you know, pushed our people around this country, um, displaced us from our, our traditional lands. Um, and, and a lot of deep history rooted throughout, you know, the process of European settlement and, and then the formulation of Canada as a country today. But yes, today we are a very proud nation of people here in Canada and uh, representing ourselves, uh, continuing to fight for the recognition and implementation of our inherent rights, which are enshrined in our constitution here in Canada. As you said, we were recognized in the Constitution of Canada. And so today we continue to work alongside the federal government and, uh, and, and really educate and, and raise awareness and continue to push for that recognition and implementation of our rights. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for for that. I think it's it's so enlightening to hear it uh, directly from the leader of the Métis people. You said history, which is kind of interesting. So first of all, I'm uh, biracial. So I'm French Canadian and uh, black. My biological father was uh, from upstate New York, a black man from the United States. But what's interesting is it's really interesting biracial because you're always trying to explain the, you know, I've had to explain who I am, where I come from, what my roots, what this mix means. And of course, you know, there's always been a community. Now, when I went to school and in the early 1980s and I read the history books, the story of the Métis people was the French Canadian settlers came and they made friends with First Nations people. They called them Indian people. And then, of course, they made babies and those babies were Métis and that's the term and you know and then there was this bad guy named louis riel and he was you know trying to fight against canada and and then uh he was accused of being a traitor and and his life taken he was hanged uh and of course we know that that's a whole bunch of nonsense louis riel is one of the central figures in metis history leadership and i would say uh, activists Uh, so maybe you can, could you tell us a little bit more about who he was, why he's so important to the Métis people and why after all these years now we're revisiting the whitewashed history, if I can call it that, of who 
we were told he was and who really he was and why we should look at him from a different lens today. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it, it always comes down to who's telling that history and what are the motivations behind why that particular part of the narrative has been perpetuated for so long um, and whose voices have been left out of really uh, sharing and and describing and, and speaking about these narratives. And so, as you say, you know, uh, Métis people ourselves have been left out of describing our history as as we remember it. And, uh, and because of that, that's not what's taught in history books. You know, there's definitely a, a shift in, in Canada now to wanting to understand the full truth of Canada's history and, and understand the different perspectives that get us to there. But this is definitely one of those pieces. So Louis Riel was absolutely one of our heroes within the Métis Nation. I always talk about uh, the Métis people. If there's one word that really describes us and encompasses our history and who we are, it's resistance. Ever since the ethnogenesis of Métis people, we have been resisting. Uh, resisting colonization, assimilation, the dispossession of our lands, people ignoring our rights and our connections to our territory and our rights to a livelihood as we so choose to make that livelihood. And one of the pieces throughout our history was Louis Riel fighting for our rights. Um, as as European settlers were coming over to Canada en masse, they were settling and, and really taking up the territory that Métis people had been living in and making their livelihood from for so long, being pushed aside. And it was uh, land that was quote-unquote owned. There was never any purchase um, by the the Hudson's Bay Company the, the, and the Northwest Company. Of course. Um, that land was then known as Rupert's Land. And there was a, a sale of Rupert's Land to what is now Canada. Um, and uh, during that time, you know, Métis people who had been living there for so long, and, and as I say, that's where they were making their livelihood, really were resisting that. They said, you know, you, you have no right to sell this land. And so Louis Riel was one of those people, he had an education and, and Métis people went to him to say, help us, we need to, to fight back against this. He brought our people together. He fought for equal representation of, of Métis people um, as Canada was establishing it. Louis Riel actually was the one who um, kept petitioning what is now the Canadian government and uh, actually was the one who who led Manitoba into confederation here in Canada. He was the one who negotiated that with what is now Canada. And just to orient people, this is the, the middle of the 19th century, right? And I believe mm -hmm. 1870 is quite a, a milestone year. Yeah, 1870 was when uh, Manitoba joined confederation. The Manitoba Act was signed. And in there, um, you know, Métis people were promised significant things like, uh, like, like land um, in in what is now Manitoba. Louis Riel, he also, he came back um, into the picture in, in 1885 when, again, as Canada was being settled, Métis people were being pushed further and further west across uh, this country. A lot of people, including my family, had settled in um, Saskatchewan, in Batoche and in St. Louis, Saskatchewan, which are neighboring Métis communities. And, you know, Métis people were petitioning the government over and over again, sending petitions to Canada to, to say, you know, we are owed this land. We we were here. We are the caretakers of this land. We have rights to these river lots that, that have been promised to us. 
And these petitions were not being answered until in 1885. Uh, the petitions were answered by um, the the Northwest Mounted Police, the what was then really Canada's military. Yes, it's it's a really fascinating story that the Battle of Batoche in in 1885, where Métis people, it was the first time that the Gatling gun was actually used against our our own people and. Uh, you know, even today, it's known as, I mean, it's the, the, the first national war here in Canada, and it was against people from these territories. It's interesting when you go to the Parliament of Canada, it lists out all of the different wars that, that Canada has participated in, contributed to, and it starts in 1885. And it actually <laughs> was a war here in Canada against people who are now Canadian citizens. Crazy. Um, so a really nuanced and interesting history, but Louis Riel was one of those figureheads who really was there to protect Métis rights, to resist this whole settlement of our territories and, and imposition and, and takeover of our rights. For that, of course, he um, was labeled as a traitor to Canada and uh, he was executed here in Canada. And he was vilified for decades, well, for more than a century after his death by mm. subsequent politicians, government leaders, uh, used as an example uh, to, you know, uh, keep other Indigenous people in their place, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I find it interesting, you know, I talk about the pushback against the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the Idle No Mores and mm-hmm. All Lives Matter and things like that. And of course, we've seen uh, how some would say, no, no, we should keep Johnny McDonald's statue and all that. But on the other side, We've also seen people go, no, you know, that was the past. It's not like that anymore. You know, where Canada's not like that anymore. And I say to them, really? Mm. In Saskatchewan, the former premier of that uh, of that province, who was kind of well known for, I would say, his outrageous statements. But I recall there was a there was a protest uh, shortly after the announcement of the uh, discovery on unmarked graves and. And he said, the people who came to this country before it was a country and since didn't come here to destroy anything. They came here to build. They came here to build better. And and they built farms and they built businesses and they built communities and churches too. So, you know, uh, I'll leave it to others to interpret. But from my perspective, it, this was another big pushback on, on the truth of the past, right? And the mm-hmm. whitewashing of history. Mm-hmm. You know, he's had to account for his statements uh, and we'll let it, leave it there. But what are your thoughts about the continued pushback that we seem to be getting about recognizing the true history of this country in, amongst people wanting to hold on to this this brand of multiculturalism that's, you know, kumbaya, everyone's happy, all the bad stuff happened in the past, it's great today? It's quite upsetting. I don't exactly know where it stems from, but I do feel as the thinking that's perpetuated that comes to be that if somebody is getting something else, it takes away from another. So the recognition of our inherent rights here in Canada, if the Canadian government starts recognizing those rights, people start becoming defensive because they think as though it might take away from their rights. But that's absolutely not the case. I think it's just a really you know, destructive way of thinking. I think it's so unnecessary. And I think it comes from a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding, um, a lack of wanting to understand too. Yes, exactly. I think back to Canada's Confederation, and we we talk about here in Canada, we talk about, you know, the fathers of Confederation. Think about the conversations that were happening 
around that table when they were talking about, you know, we're formalizing this country, we are coming here and we are putting this together and we are creating this great future for for Canada as, as a country and, and future generations. You think about the people who were sitting around that table. It really didn't represent the diversity of the people who were actually living on these lands at the time. You never hear about the grandmothers of Confederation or the <laughs> sisters no. of the mothers or the the people who were of these lands. And uh, so you think about how this country was actually formed and the lack of diversity and the lack of perspectives that led to the decisions that were being made. And now today, we are trying to change. We are trying to you know, bring more people into these decisions that we're making for, for the future of this country, for our generations. And for me, I always think about, you know, adding more voices to a conversation, adding more voices to the decision-making tables is only going to create that more in- inclusive future that we all want. And, uh, and, and I always come back to the Fathers of Confederation. And I think, you know, then maybe that's where we went wrong in, in not having those grandmothers of Confederation at the table. <laughs> you know, in our charter, the Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we have enshrined in there the ability for equity measures. And those equity measures are not to the detriment of other people's equal rights, especially minority rights in this country. Mm. And I, I always find it interesting how difficult many people have with the concept of equity. Mm. It's not about taking something. It's just making, mm-hmm. uh, providing added supports. It doesn't matter if it's to do with language or economics, right? It's about uh, providing some equity measures that bring a greater le- level of equality where there was none before, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that when I, I spoken to, um, I was mentioning to you, I spoke with Manny Jules, the former chief of the Kamloops First Nation, and he mentioned that, right, about the fact that this is part of reconciliation is to go back and, and actually uh, grapple with the truths so that we can all get to a place of understanding and move more into reconciliation. What's your what's your thoughts around that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hear it over and over again from many Indigenous people in this country that, you know, we have to have truth before we can have reconciliation. And it goes right back to getting part of this conversation, which is, you know, there's been perspectives and there have been truths that have been missing from the public awareness, the public consciousness of of this country. And it's starting to be talked about now and it's starting to be more understood. It's starting to be more accepted. I think we still have a long way to go to get to a place where everybody understands and acknowledges and accepts that this is actually Canada's history. Um, A lot of these, you know, narratives that Canada has always been a safe haven for everybody you know, that's that's simply not true. And it's sad to say, I mean, we certainly have a country now today that is a safe haven for many people, and it is a safer place for many people to come to. And, and I absolutely accept that. But still today, it, it isn't and it hasn't been that safe haven that, that everybody believes it to be. And to understand and grapple with that, it's hard. It, it really is hard for some people to understand that it hasn't been this perfect shining history where everybody got along and it has been kumbaya and everybody's always been respected. It's hard to learn that or to even to unlearn that, but it's necessary. It's necessary to know these things in order for us to move forward because if we continue to ignore it, if we continue to ignore our truth, then it forces people to continue to live 
lies and in Canada will live a lie until we can fully reckon that that history and, and understand it and then we can move forward together we can understand what's needed to move forward and make a brighter future for us all well said well said after the break I want to get into the historic voyage to the Vatican in Italy earlier this year that you led uh, a Meiji delegation. So after the break, we're going to speak with President Carano about the audience that the Meiji people delegation had with Pope Francis at the Vatican. We'll be right back. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Okay, I'm back with uh, our amazing guest, President Caron, from the Métis National Council. Um, so let's go back to uh, March of 2022, earlier this year. And next thing I know, it's like every day I'm riveted to the TV screen and we have an Indigenous delegation, First Nation, Inuit and Métis people, and the Métis delegation is led by you and others. You're going to the Vatican for an audience with Pope Francis to share challenging testimonials and stories about residential schools. So maybe take us back to how did this come about? What happened? And then uh, there was an amazing historical moment that happened. Maybe you can share that with us. For the listeners who who might not know or or again, pieces of our history that aren't spoken about. Residential schools was uh, a system here in Canada that uh, developed and, and implemented by different facets of the church, largely the Roman Catholic Church and the federal government. And these schools were all across this country meant to to take the Indian out of the child, um, to really assimilate Indigenous people here on these lands into European culture. And it really was this system that destroyed 
our families, our communities. It's tried to take away our culture, our language, our complete sense of who we are. So there has been, you know, leaders in our past, Indigenous leaders who have started to talk about these things. Uh, one of those people is uh, National Chief Phil Fontaine. Many years ago, he was one of the first people who was so brave and so courageous to to explain and to talk about publicly his experience in residential school. Um, and, uh, and since that time, you know, there's been movement towards uh, understanding these, these dark pasts, this dark history, and moving towards finding ways to heal. Um, one of those ways, and again, largely driven by, by leaders such as Phil Fontaine, you know, he's, he's always been fighting for an apology, a recognition and that acknowledgement from the Roman Catholic Church, from the Pope himself, that they played a role in these systems, in the destruction, the colonization, and the attempted assimilation of our people. This has been been something that's been talked about for a number of years, but there has never really been too much uptake by the, the Catholic Church for this until just recently with Pope Francis, who, um, my understanding, I, I'm not Catholic, but I do understand that he is one of the more uh, progressive popes uh, and uh, in, in, in the past. And so it was a week after I was elected, I got a letter from the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops saying, there will be a delegation of First Nations, Métis, and, and Inuit uh, over to the Vatican to meet with Pope Francis. Please put together a delegation that represents the Métis Nation and uh, get it back to us in a week. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Well, welcome to your new role as leader. <laughs> exactly. So immediately I went to my board of governors to talk about, you know, how do we come up with a, a group of eight? We were told that we could bring eight people into this meeting with Pope Francis. How do we represent the Métis Nation with eight people? How do we represent our diversity and, and unique experiences? And so we immediately knew that we had to take this as an opportunity to highlight, to honor, to uphold and uplift the voices of Métis residential school survivors. But we also wanted to represent the diversity of our communities. And so in the end, we came up with a delegation of, of eight individuals. Um, we brought three Métis residential school survivors along with us. We brought young people. We brought a community historian. We brought somebody who practices both the Catholic faith and Indigenous traditions. He represents a balance there. Um, we brought somebody who is um, from the LGBTQ community and a, a strong advocate for LGBTQ rights and, and advancing um, LGBTQ priorities throughout the Métis Nation. And that was important to us as well. And so we did an incredible job in such a short amount of time to pull together this delegation that represented the Métis Nation in the best way possible. We spent quite a few months just trying to consult with communities and citizens and understand the different perspectives. And, you know, it always came back to this is an opportunity to share with the Pope who the Métis people are, what our unique experiences are as Métis people as they relate to residential schools, and to really have our survivors share their stories. Because out of anything, you know, that is the most powerful story that could be shared. And so that's exactly what we did. We went over to the Vatican at the end of March. Um, the Métis National Council was the first of the three delegations to meet with Pope Francis on March 28th. We had about an hour with the Pope. And in that hour, 
we gave all of our time to the three survivors. We let them share their stories as openly and honestly and courageously um, as, as they wanted. And then I delivered a very short message to Pope Francis, inviting him along on our journey for truth, justice, healing, and reconciliation. For us, it was important to show the Pope at that time that out of all of this destruction that has happened in our communities, out of all of this forced and attempted assimilation, that we're still here. Mm-hmm. And that regardless of if the, the Catholic Church was to acknowledge that this had happened, you know, we are already on this path of, of understanding our truth, of fighting for justice, of doing the work as directed by our communities to heal and to rebuild and to move forward for our future generations. We are doing this work regardless, but there is a role for everybody to play in reconciliation, including the Catholic Church, including the Pope. And and we invited him along on that path. And in that one hour, it was really interesting to see the Pope sit there and listen to these stories of, of residential school survivors. And I, if anybody, if any of the listeners have had the opportunity to directly hear these stories coming from the mouths, from the hearts, um, from the souls of, of our residential school survivors, it's impossible to not be impacted by the power of their stories, by the power of their truths. And you could see that on the face of, of Pope Francis as this was happening. Wow. When I delivered that message to him of, of inviting him for truth, healing, reconciliation and justice, you know, when he spoke to us, he spoke largely in Italian, but the three words that he actually shared back to us in English was, he was listening and he, he, he looked back at us and he said, truth, justice, and healing. He said, I take that as my personal responsibility. So that was a really, really powerful moment that that first meeting that we had with him, we had planned after this meeting um, to immediately go and share our reflections, what we shared with the Pope, what the Pope shared back with us, we we planned to immediately go and share that with as many media sources as possible because we are responsible and accountable to our people back here in Canada and we wanted to get that message back to them immediately. And as many people saw on the news, we proceeded out with uh, two of our young Métis fiddle players leading the way. And it was important to me to share with everybody, with the world, everybody who was listening, that the reason why we did that was because we wanted to show the world that regardless of all of this terrible and traumatic past that has been inflicted um, on our people, we are still here today. We are revitalizing our culture and we are proud to be who we are. And what better way to show that than with two young people who um, are revitalizing our culture through music. And it was an incredibly powerful moment I can't say enough about the power and the courage of our survivors who shared their stories. And, you know, without them, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be where we are. And I truly believe we wouldn't have that apology from Pope Francis if it weren't for the stories that they shared. Amazing. Thank you. I felt like I was in the room there as you were describing. For those who don't know about residential schools, we're talking about 100 years that this went on all the way up to 1996, you know? So this mm-hmm. is like old and recent history and over 150,000 Indigenous children were taken forcibly from their home, from their families, some at super young age. And as we know uh, from the Global Reports and the New York Times and other about the uh, unmarked graves that were 
revealed, not that the indigenous people weren't telling us that this had been going on just in the last year, that, that you know, some of these souls that were not, that did not survive. So it's important for the survivors, as you said, to be here to offer testimony, right? To speak for those that cannot. And, and I've been in those situations and it's so powerful. I'm a father of two young children and you can't help but be moved by that. And it's so great to hear that you got through. I wanted to read what the Pope said. I want to know from you, did you know that he was going to offer some form of apology? No, no, we, uh, <laughs> I, I, it was, you know, one of these things, it was so fascinating. I was just talking um, about this yesterday with some folks from the Ministry of Justice here in, in Canada, and uh, and they asked me the same question. And our, during our time over there, you know, the way that Métis First Nations and Inuit were working together as well was incredibly inspiring and i had the absolute honor and privilege of getting to do this work alongside uh, president obed who is the the national president of inuit tupperit kanatami and uh and regional chief antoine who is a, a chief of the dene nation and led that delegation on behalf of the assembly of first nations we were all staying in the same hotel we were sharing meals together we were talking and debriefing after every one of our meetings and on the night before the general audience, the last day, we had just reflected on each of our meetings, on how the Pope was receiving each of our stories. And, uh, you know, we were up until probably about 11 o'clock the night before just meeting the, the three of us talking. And, and we all said to each other, you know, I, I think he might apologize. I think he might deliver this apology because we had gone into it knowing that of course, we were continuing to advocate for that apology. And, and we were all delivering the same message that we wanted the apology to happen here in Canada on our traditional territories, on our traditional homelands. And so to us to think that he wasn't going to apologize while at the Vatican, it just wasn't fully on top of our minds until the night before when we were having these discussions. And so we talked amongst ourselves and we said, like, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? If, if the Pope apologizes tomorrow and, and um, none of us are really in the position to, you know, quote unquote, accept an apology on behalf of our people. That's that's just not the positions that we're in. Um, that apology is owed to our survivors and our intergenerational trauma survivors as well. So we had that conversation and, you know, we got into the room on, on April 1st and um, we were all seated there and uh, we were handed out that, and I'll, I'll leave it to you to read, but we were handed out a, a translation of the, of what the Pope was going to address us with. And maybe I'll leave it, leave it with you to read that and, and I'll share our reactions then. So this is Pope Francis. I feel sorrow and shame for the role that a number of Catholics, particularly those with educational responsibilities have had in all these things that wounded you the abuses you suffered and the lack of respect shown for your identity, your culture, and even your spiritual values. For the deplorable conduct of these matters, these members of the Catholic Church, I ask for God's forgiveness. And I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. And I join my brothers, Canadian bishops, in asking your pardon. So that's quite powerful. So I'll leave it to you to tell me how did that yeah, so I was I was given one of those pamphlets before the Pope even arrived in the room um, by by one of our folks, and and he handed it off to me. He said the Pope's going to apologize today. <laughs> I said, okay, here it goes. 
I was seated beside our, our three survivors and, um, you know, I didn't show them until the Pope spoke those words. And I was sharing one of the pamphlets with one of our incredible survivors, Angie Creer. And um, as the Pope was speaking in, in Italian, we were following along in English in this book. And I, I pointed to the words when it got to that point, And I pointed to the words that said, I am very sorry to Angie to show her that that's what he was saying. And in that moment, she just broke down. She just, you could feel that emotional reaction to those words. Um, and I looked down, down the road to, uh, to our other two survivors, um, Emile and Antoinette, and it was the same from them. They were immediately struck by those words. It had an immediate impact on them. And that was such an incredibly powerful moment. For me, I wasn't emotional at that moment exactly. I was there to support our survivors. It was in the time between when the Pope spoke and um, then we had the opportunity to witness uh, different cultural showcases from First Nations, Métis and Inuit. And we had our two, again, our two young fiddle players and they performed for the Pope. And it was that moment that I actually just got so emotional to be seated between our two young people who are doing this work and showing the world that we're still here and this is our culture and we are proud to be who we are. And on the other side of me, these elders who have persevered and been so resilient their whole lives to be in that moment was so emotional and so powerful for me because I know that this is part of our journey. We are moving forward. And uh, it was it was incredibly powerful. And the words that the Pope spoke, the words of that apology, for some, it's not enough. For some, it didn't go far enough. For him to apologize on behalf of some individuals within the Catholic Church, that's not the apology that many people are looking for. They want the, the actual recognition and acknowledgement that, you know, it is the Church who perpetuated these harms against our people. They facilitated... Um, these institutions. It wasn't just a few bad apples within this institution that did this. It was a system that that facilitated it and perpetuated it. Yes. But on the other hand, like I say, sitting beside these these survivors and also coming home and hearing from other survivors, you know, so they told me that was enough. That was enough for them um, to continue to move down their path of healing. But being in this position as the national president. Um, I have to continue advocating for the the things that other people want to hear. And, and for some, they want to hear a stronger apology. And, uh, you know, we have that opportunity coming up with the Pope's coming trip to Canada. And uh, that is what we continue to push for is a stronger apology here on our homelands to as many survivors who want to be there to witness that as possible. As you said, I think that the church itself was responsible for a residential school. So uh, as you say, you're going to continue that work. So now Pope Francis has committed, uh, it's booked. There's actually an official visit happening in late July here in Canada. Uh, they're going to three different uh, locations in the country. I believe Quebec City, I believe in Edmonton, if I'm correct, or near there, mm -hmm. and also in the north. I'm not quite, I can't remember exactly. Ikaluit. And uh, I know there's been obviously uh, lobbying to have the Pope go to other locations, including possibly Kamloops. What is your preparation for that? Now the expectations must be almost sky high, <laughs> given that you had, 
you know, your expectations were uh, in some ways more than realized uh, in Italy, in the Vatican. So what, how are you preparing? What are your hopes for that visit for your people? Yeah, so there's definitely, there's a lot of moving pieces to planning a papal visit. Um, and especially in such a short time, I, I understand that most papal visits are planned within 12 to 18 months. And I think this is like 12 to 18 weeks. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of folks that are involved in the planning. Ultimately, though, there are protocols and processes and procedures that need to be followed. Um, and they are directed by the Vatican. And so as much input and, and guidance as we give them, um, the final say of all of this lays in the hands of those folks over at the Vatican, um, including the site selection uh, for the Pope's journey over here. I think, you know, in an ideal world, we would have loved to see the Pope here for a longer amount of time to visit more locations. Like you say, you know, there was an official invitation from uh, to Kemlitz Equipment to visit Kamloops and to visit that first site where the unmarked graves was revealed. Um, but again, ultimately, as much advocacy as we put behind this, it is in the hands of the Vatican. And so we are taking this um, as, you know, these are the sites that we were given. So we'll, we'll try to make the most of it. And there's a lot of folks that are involved in the planning of it. I don't yet have full details on, you know, how long, where, what <laughs> these events are going to look like. Um, but in that time, I am speaking with our Métis governments to understand you know, what are their expectations? How many survivors would they like to bring? How can we facilitate that? For me and for, for the Métis Nation, I think the biggest thing that we are hoping from our expectations is one, that stronger apology delivered to as many survivors as possible and two, commitment to action because that's the other piece that is missing. You know, actions speak louder than words. Action must follow apology if it is to be meaningful. And when we were at the Vatican, we left Pope Francis with a book. And that book included more stories from our survivors. And it included also the pathway forward that we have proposed to the Pope, to the Vatican, to the Catholic Church, to the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishop. And it outlines actions that they can take within the themes of truth, justice, reconciliation, and healing. And it was uh, planned to give that to the Pope as a gift. So we do hope that between when we were there at the Vatican and when he comes to Canada, that he spent some time reading those stories, continuing to reflect on this truth, and, and then really studying those actions that we have left with him that will contribute to um, hopefully systemic change that uh, will continue down this path of truth, justice, healing, and reconciliation. And it's our hope that in his words that he shares while he's on our territories that uh, that he commits to and uh, really carves that pathway forward to to really seeing through some of those actions. A lot has happened since I sat down in conversation with President Caron in early June 2022, ahead of Pope Francis' scheduled visit to Canada in July 2022. As you've just heard, President Caron had high hopes that the Pope's visit would deliver to the expectations she detailed, including the hope for a more concrete apology by the Pope on behalf of the Catholic Church. I reached out to President Caron in early October to follow up with her and get a first-hand recap of the outcomes from this historic visit to, by the Pope to Canada. 
But welcome back, President Caron. Thank you for making the time again for us today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So when we spoke back in June, you shared your hopes for Pope Francis' visit, uh, which took place between July 24th and the 29th, 2022. I know when we talked, you were kind of still figuring out what all the details of what was going to happen, where the Pope was going to visit, how the engagement was going to be with the Métis people, First Nation and Inuit people. So maybe can you tell us what happened? (laughs) Sure. So lots happened. Um, It was an incredibly busy five days when Pope Francis got to Canada. And when we last talked and I said, we didn't have a lot of the details. We didn't have a lot of the details that week still too. It was, um, there's just, there was so many people involved and, and so much happening to coordinate hundreds of thousands of people across this country to make this happen. And, you know, there was a lot of highs, there was a lot of lows, pros, cons to the week. Um, But, you know, on ultimate uh, uh, reflection of it, it was incredibly busy. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to every location in Canada that Pope Francis traveled to, starting uh, in Edmonton. The first event took place, I'd say that was the most uh, historic part of the trip for Pope Francis when he delivered an apology on Canadian territory, on on our homelands um, at Masquachise First Nation, just uh, south of Edmonton, Alberta. We gathered um, on those lands and Pope Francis uh, arrived and we had hundreds, if not thousands, of Métis residential school survivors attend with us. Um, and Pope Francis apologized. He did deliver an apology. He um, he reflected on the words that were brought to him by residential school survivors back in in March and April of earlier this year and uh, had clearly taken the time to really sit with those stories that were shared with him. The apology that he delivered was historic and I would say, you know, narrowly completed one of the calls to action within the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which is to deliver an apology here on our homelands. I say narrowly because there are many people within our communities uh, who say that the apology can, can go further that the apology should be done on behalf of the Catholic Church as an institution um, and not just a few individuals uh, within that institution and apologizing on behalf of them, which is, again, what, what happened. And if I may, maybe I, I'd like to read the, the text of the apology. And on the back end of that, I'd like to know the difference of what happened at the Vatican and what happened on Canadian soil. But here is the text as I understand it from the Pope. Pope Francis, I'm here because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is that of again asking forgiveness, of telling you once more that I'm deeply sorry. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppress the indigenous peoples. I am sorry. I ask forgiveness, in particular, for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. Pope Francis, 2022. So 
again, you know, as I said earlier this year, the words from Pope Francis, the words of, of an apology of any kind, for some residential school survivors within, within the Métis Nation, that was enough. That was enough for them to move forward on their healing journey, to have that recognition by the Pope uh, that these institutions did harm, that even in, individuals within the institutions did harm. But for others, there needs to be more, and, and they need that recognition that it was an institution that facilitated this harm, and that you know that's what they were hoping the apology would do. Um, so that took place on the first day. And from there, there was uh, numerous uh, events throughout Canada. Um, a, a giant one at, uh, at the football stadium in Edmonton. You know, that one was more so tailored to uh, the general public rather than specifically Indigenous peoples and, and part of that penitential pilgrimage. Uh, another event took place at Lac Saint Anne, which is a, a historic Métis uh, site, a historic Métis community. And when I say that there's highs and lows that took place throughout the week, you know, the highs happened when I got to spend time with survivors who were grateful to be there, were grateful for the idea that we are moving forward on our healing journey. Another high would be the fact that it seemed as though the more time Pope Francis spent with residential school survivors listening to their stories, the more detailed his remarks would be the next time he spoke publicly. Um, you could see that his understanding was evolving throughout his journey. However, the lows continued to be that lack of concrete understanding or acknowledgement that the belief that one system is better than the other is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And to impose somebody else's belief system on another people while recognizing or believing that their way is better is just, it's wrong. And so, you know, in some of the, the language that Pope Francis shared, um, including some at Lac St. Anne, it failed to recognize that that was inappropriate and that, you know, we need to recognize that and move forward in a way recognizing that everybody's belief systems matter. And that we can all live in a world together and, and believe what we want to believe. Uh, and that, you know, that uh, going forward and, and still trying to perpetuate Catholicism or, or bring that into our communities, you know, that's not what a lot of our communities want. And I think that there's still a little bit of lack of understanding from the church that that that's not okay. And that's not what our, our communities necessarily want or need to move forward. Um, and so there was, there was moments that, you know, it was really complicated and, and challenging to, uh, to reflect on. I can imagine just picking up on something you, you said is, you know, the, on the, uh, on the positive side, I remember actually in our earlier interview, you talked about you had left a book with the Pope and had hoped that he was going to read the additional stories and uh, understand uh, what you were looking for, a tangible action, right? Mm -hmm. I, like, I liked how you, you connected it to real action, and that now you've talked about how he went from uh, the different sites in Canada. So it seems to me that perhaps as an individual, as the leader of his church, he seems like he's someone that's willing to take in and, and learn, but then there is the divide of what do you think is this not wanting to make the whole leap to actually apologize 
What what do you think's getting in the way of that in terms of apologizing on behalf of the Catholic Church? It's the system. The system is getting in the way, the institution of the Catholic Church itself. You know, a lot of the challenges that as we as human beings face today come from systems and institutions that uh, perpetuate harms. There is systemic racism exists. And, you know, I personally believe the system is holding Pope Francis back from from saying those things. And I'll tell you one example of, of my perspective of this. So, as I said, as we traveled across Canada, we went to more events. The last event happened in the north of Canada here. And that event that took place before the public event, there was um, a small gathering of residential school survivors from the north who met uh, untelevised with Pope Francis. And a number of residential school survivors had the opportunity to again share their personal stories and experiences uh, as they relate to residential school and the Catholic Church. In every moment that I have spending with residential school survivors and hearing their stories, it's painful. It's hard to hear and it's and it impacts the way that that you are as a human being. That event that took place was so incredibly powerful. There was not a dry eye in the room, including looking around the room and seeing some of Pope Francis's uh, security personnel were crying. Wow. Because those stories that these people were sharing were so hard to hear. And I just don't believe that you can leave a room after hearing those stories and not want to do something about it. And it was moments after Pope Francis got on his plane, a few hours after um, that the event with the survivors took place, that he was doing a viewing with, with the media who were traveling with him. And there was a journalist from the Globe and Mail who had the opportunity to ask him a question. And this is unscripted. This is not televised. This is in the moment. And, and that journalist has a very pointed question where he asked, do you now think that after spending time with residential school survivors, hearing their stories, being on these lands, do you think that what happened here through these systems and institutions was genocide? And the Pope said, yes. Wow. He acknowledged that what happened here in Canada was genocide. And when asked why he hadn't said that publicly before, he, he said that he, could, he didn't think of the word <laughs> that it was. But when that journalist used the word and asked, was this genocide? His immediate reaction was, yes, it was. And I think that's a watershed moment in history for a head of something so big, the Catholic Church, to recognize that what took place on these lands was genocide. There's no going back from there. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, when they put out their report back in 2015, you know, they they classified what happened through residential schools as cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. And I know many people fought to just not um, not put that stipulation of just cultural genocide. They wanted it to be outright called genocide. But I don't think the world was ready to hear that yet. Nobody was accepting that it was. But now we have to. We have to accept that what took place on these lands was genocide of our people, of Métis people, of First Nations and Inuit people on these lands. And Pope Francis recognized that. And, you know, he didn't have his papers in front of him. He didn't have his people standing behind him telling him what he can or cannot say. And that's why... Again, this is a personal belief of mine, but I do believe that 
he as an individual sees what has happened here and wants to say and do more. Um, but it's an institution that holds him back. And so now moving forward, and, and as you say, into that time of action, it's the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops who have been tasked with rolling that action out here on the ground. Pope Francis described and, and kind of gave them marching orders to say that this is how you need to move forward. Um, and it, it will be with the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so we're in a time now of, of figuring out how we're going to do this work with the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, of spending time with my counterparts at the AFN and the ITK to understand how do we carry this momentum forward. They have been given a directive by essentially their boss to do this work alongside <laughs> of us. Yes. And now we need to continue to hold their hands and show them the right way to do this work. Um, so we are currently in the process of uh, working together, like my, myself and um, the the leads at the uh, ITK and the AFN, to figure out what next. How do we continue to do this work? How do we make sure that the, the bishops are accountable and um, committed to moving forward? That, you know, Pope Francis's trip to Canada and delivery of an apology is not the be all and end all. It doesn't end here. We have so much more work to do. And that's kind of where we're at now. Amazing. Thank you for all that. It's such a, a great insight to, to hear from what actually happened from the inside. But you know, one thing you, you touched on is about in my book, you know, Black and White, I talk about, you know, bridging the divides of understanding. And, and they're the, the only way that you can get people to maybe see things differently is to get people together, mm -hmm. right? You know, there's going to, as you said, there's going to be people that thought it was amazing, other people that said it wasn't enough. But the fact that he he was, he was came here, he met, and and the impactful, as you just described, inequality. And, you know, I, I personally had former chief of the Assembly First Nation, Phil Fontaine, share his own residential school story with me and 200 other people back in 2008. And then I just happened to be in the Yukon and I had other instances where I heard testimonies of residential school survivors, which brought us to tears. And you can't be in those rooms and not be affected profoundly. And as a, as a matter of fact, it, it was one of the things that was a catalyst for me to start moving into a direction of, of really learning and becoming more aware. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm a, a glass half full kind of person. So, you know, not being Indigenous or Métis or First it's like, it seems very positive that all of this happened. I would say it's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, we've had leaders advocate for what took place here for, for years now, and it is a step in the right direction. There's so much more, though, that has to be done, and it doesn't all uh, necessarily need to be the Catholic Church. Um, you know, they have an, a, a huge role to play in moving forward, but there are other ways that our communities want to move forward with their healing journeys that has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. And so, you know, it's it's on me as a leader of the Métis Nation to find out what those healing modalities are that our communities want and advocate just as hard for those as we did for a papal apology. Um, there's a role for the federal government to play. And, uh, you know, uh, this is a, a a whole other podcast that we could talk about. Absolutely, talking about the um, the lack of recognition of hundreds of residential schools here in Canada. Still, you know, there's um, schools that were in Métis communities, including the community of Isle Lacrosse, Saskatchewan, that saw through almost seven generations of Métis children 
and the federal and provincial governments don't recognize it as a residential school, though it did the same things to those children as the ones that were settled through the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. And it's just absolutely painful to be in that community and meet with survivors who just want recognition that that happened to them as well. And that's another part of the story that needs to be told and continues to to not be told. And so, like I say, there's so much that needs to be done. Uh, the whole papal visit, the apology, that was one piece, but there's a, a lot more of the puzzle to be completed. I think that the Métis people are in good hands with you as their uh, as the leader. Uh, maybe just finish it off with asking you, what would you see as one of your number one priorities and I think I hear it in your voice a little bit through your talk. Are you, you, uh, are you hopeful that we're going to get to the action and the change that's needed quickly in this country in, in, the, in the months and years ahead? Number one priority, I, within this portfolio, there's so much. <laughs> within this portfolio, it's ensuring that our, our survivors get what they need. Um, you know, they're, they're aging. They're old. They're not going to be here for much longer. And I just want them to have justice and peace and and to to feel as though they are recognized and that's that's a huge priority for me um am i hopeful i yes i am i i am i am hopeful because the amount of people who are now understanding of what has happened in this country um and the conversation is still going and that's that's i guess that's another big priority for me is to make sure these conversations continue to happen that we don't just stop talking about um issues that we as metis face in this country and and find solutions together because you know all of the work that i'm doing is is to bring people together within the metis nation but to ensure that people know canadians know that if the Métis Nation is thriving, Canada can thrive. We are part of this this federation and we need to work together. And so we need to continue these conversations. We need to find solutions to the challenges that we continue to face. And we need to build a brighter future for, for the Métis Nation and for, for all of Canada. Amazing. Amazing. I'm with you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. President Cassidy Caron. National Council President of the Métis Nation. Uh, thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Safe travels home. Definitely. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and take the time to read our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change, is available at your favorite bookstores across the U.S. and Canada, and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, 
and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.